Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, <clears throat> the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, we take a look at the bank rate, uh, Department of Justice fraud criminal action uh, against the company last week, which resulted in a non-prosecution agreement. We learned some new topics, including Ed's cushion and cookie jar accounting, all in the context of a very interesting discussion based upon a blog post Matt wrote on internal controls, over management override of internal controls, abuse of internal controls, corporate governance and internal controls, and a wide variety of other topics relevant to the compliance practitioner. It's a fascinating exploration of a case that perhaps didn't get a lot of press in the FCPA world, yet gives you some really interesting and, more importantly, direct examples around internal controls. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox. Back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we take up the bank rate SEC enforcement action that Matt wrote about last week in a post entitled Bank Rate Pays $28.5 Million in Fraud Case. It's a fascinating look at uh, some very uh, interesting internal control failures, uh, once again, proving that uh, it you can't, you can't make this stuff up. So we're going to get into some of that uh, in the uh, podcast. So Matt, uh, first of all, uh, welcome and uh, thanks for taking the time to write about this case. It was fascinating. Yeah. Hi, Tom. So I did really like this case and uh, some of you may have overlooked it because it was announced just hours before the big MTS uh, FCPA settlement that was announced. But um, you know, I think that Big Russian telecom firm getting busted on bribery charges is not news anymore, but there's a lot of nuanced stuff going on in the bank rate case. So that's why I decided to pick up on that last week. So you want to lay uh, lay a little bit of the background on us, Matt? Yeah, sure. So this is the website bankrate.com. Many of you might know of it. It is like a personal finance website and uh, it's been around for at least 10 years or so, uh, offers uh, mortgage rates, calculators, uh, prepayment planning tools, things like that. Um, it Bankrate was a publicly traded company for a long time in the 2010s. It went public in 2011. Those details do matter. Uh, and then in 2017, ultimately, Bankrate was acquired by a private equity firm called Red Ventures. Uh, that owns Bankrate through a holding company called Baton Holdings. So I'm going to talk about Red Ventures as Bankrate's owner, you, but you will see uh, information from time to time that includes Baton Holdings. They're the intermediate level uh, owner there. But here's what happened. Um, basically, the former CFO of Bankrate, 
as well as the former vice president of finance, two men named Ed DiMaria, the CFO, and Huijin Lerner, the VP of finance. They conspired in the early 2010s with several other um, bank rate employees in the accounting department to commit accounting fraud uh, in advance of the IPO in 2011 and then into 2012, 13, and 14. We can get into what that fraud was in a few minutes. But ultimately, uh, what happened was that, as with most accounting fraud, the numbers were not sustainable. And eventually, by 2014, the company had to announce a restatement uh, that was very painful. Uh, owners, share investors, uh, shareholders in Bankrate at the time, they suffered a couple of nasty losses. Uh, Ed DiMaria and Huijin Lerner both had been indicted on securities fraud personally. Both had pled guilty. Both are serving time in prison these days. Uh, but ultimately, the Justice Department wound up um, getting a – they signed a non-prosecution agreement with Red Ventures related to this fraud. Uh, but Red Ventures, through Bankrate, had to pay a total of $28.5 million. That was $13 million in restitution to investors and $15.5 million in a penalty that goes to the U.S. Postal Service, I presume on some sort of wire fraud uh, statute. There is no SEC involvement at this point, although the SEC had settled charges against the company and against both Lerner and DiMaria earlier this decade. So we got enforcement all over the place for what is really an accounting fraud case caused by two corrupt senior executives at Bankrate back in the early 2010s. That's that's the nutshell. So some of the things that uh, uh, struck me or stuck out was I have to start with Ed's cushion. Yes. You know, when you have a it's one thing to have a spreadsheet where you have all of your uh, <clears throat> bribery payments schedules and tie them directly to the son or daughter of the foreign official. But when you call a um, business account Ed's cushion, uh, would that even begin to hint at a red flag? Uh, I think in sophisticated investigation terms, we would call this a clue. Um, <laughs> but. The fraud that they actually did, it's worth getting into. Uh, this is known among anti-fraud people as either cushion accounting or cookie jar accounting, where you take costs in the good times uh, and you stuff them onto the balance sheet then to reverse those costs later in the bad times. So you build up a cushion and then you deflate the cushion or you remove it from the cushion later on when times are tough. And that distorts the economic reality of what the business is doing. So particularly for these guys, they created a accrued deal cost account pre-IPO. That is perfectly fine if you are not using it to commit fraud. But these were all IPO costs the company had incurred. They had promised we're going to do this. We know we're going to have to pay it. But they had not paid it yet. So you have this line item of costs that are accruing. Again, that's legal. What was illegal was that they were putting routine operating costs into this account. And when you do that, it is cookie jar accounting or cushion accounting. And they kept the track of all of these uh, charges on a spreadsheet that they hid away from uh, auditors and uh, investors and the board and everybody else. But that was a spreadsheet that was essentially 
keeping track of everything in the Cushion account, and they had named the account Ed's Cushion. So that was the clue that eventually led people to say, you are committing fraud, Ed DiMaria, the CFO. But yeah, that was, uh, they eventually, they stuffed $1.8 million in ongoing expenses into this accrual account. Um, so that was a big cushion. And uh, then they tried to deflate it later on in 2013 and 14 when times were getting a bit tougher. Uh, so to make the um, the balance sheet and the income statement look better than they actually were. But all of this eventually unraveled by 2014. Uh, and that is when Di Maria got fired and a restatement had to be announced and all sorts of unpleasant business from there forward. So Matt, you made one point that I don't think we really talk about, if not enough, perhaps even at all. And that's, it's not that it's illegal, nefarious, or even bad or wrong to override internal controls. It's the abuse of the override of internal controls. I was wondering if you might take a few minutes to explain uh, the difference in that. Yeah, sure. So that really was the fundamental misconduct here, was that Di Maria, the CFO, was overriding internal controls and accounting policies to create this cushion accounting scam. Um, it was abuse of management override. Now, Auditors will talk about the risk of management override quite a bit, and it is a risk, but we also have to remember that management override is a vital tool to keep the company moving forward. So if you know, for all the compliance officers out there, you know, you would say that you might have um, no payment of any types to foreign government uh, officials, no facilitation payments whatsoever, except in, um, say, life or death jeopardy. You know, if you don't pay me this bribe, I'm not going to let you um, get out of, I don't know, some sort of uh, quarantine that we're going to keep you in in Central Africa for three months unless you pay me 20 bucks to get you cleared through immigration. Like some sort of life and death circumstance like that, a compliance officer would say, okay, override the policy pay that guy the bribe just so you can get out of your quarantine. So you, you know, th these things happen all the time. Management override is a crucial tool to bring flexibility to corporate policy. So you need it, but the abuse of it is what Di Maria did. And what we've seen in many times over the years, all sorts of trouble can come from managers overriding internal controls for nefarious purposes. And that's the distinction you need to think through how can we design our processes and our procedures so that management override can take place where it's necessary, but nefarious management override will stick out like a sore thumb, and then people would be able to call it out and ask about it. Um, so I think that would relate back to this sort of example of accounting fraud, uh, where you really want to keep all financial information in one central repository, um, accounting software people talk about this all the time, that you need a strong single source of data. Because if you have a separate spreadsheet, then that's two sources of data. And you can have distortions between the two of them. Um, FCPA context, this is exactly what we saw with, uh, I think it was the Panasonic settlement back in December, where, oh no, I'm sorry, it was the Polycom settlement, where Polycom China executives kept secret spreadsheets of bribe payments. Well, two separate sources of data uh, so that Polycom China could override uh, and deceive the internal controls that the rest of the company worldwide was trying to use. 
That was the FCPA context. This is the accounting fraud context. Same problem, however, is that we have these systems that allow the creation of separate financial information databases, and then you can create these uh, distortions. You can create all sorts of fraud. You can get into all sorts of trouble. Um, a good control to prevent the abuse of management override would be clear documentation of all financial transactions so that when an odd uh, transaction comes along, it sticks out like a sore thumb and it, you can't avoid looking at it. Um, which was my next point that I thought was at issue here is the reason why people did not bring this to the attention of outsiders earlier was because Ed DeMaria was the CFO. He had a lot of power. How would you get around the CFO? How would you avoid retaliation? You would avoid it by having the financial data out there for all to see undeniably and irrefutably. This is a weird transaction and kind of negate the CFO's ability to override it for nefarious purposes. But if with proper documentation, a CFO could override a control for legitimate purposes. And that's the conversation that you want to have. That's the internal control landscape that you want to try to create. So you also found some uh, governance and investigation uh, failures, starting with my other second favorite phrase, perhaps third, cookie jar would have to be second, mm -hmm. quote, previous counsel, end quote. Yes. Uh, and what they did or didn't do with the uh, SEC inquiry you referenced uh, in your opening remarks. Yeah. So uh, as we said, the um, the Cushing accounting started in 2011. Well, by 2012, the SEC was knocking on the door asking bank rate of, you know, we'd like this information, we'd like that information. Basically, the SEC was on to the fact that something was amiss at bank rate. So it started sending document requests to the firm. Uh, Ed DiMaria was still CFO at that time, and he was working with previous counsel. I do not know the firm, but uh, previous counsel and DiMaria started providing information to the SEC that was um, misleading at best, I would put it that way. Uh, so it would provide some documents that were maybe outside the date range of what the SEC had asked for, uh, or it would provide documents that were not germane to the questions the SEC had been asking. And really, there's a reason why Di Maria was sentenced to 10 years in prison, because he was misleading the uh, investigation. He was misleading regulators. He was thwarting a strong, successful uh, investigation. And he did all of that uh, by all of these various you know, investigation shenanigans up until the restatement in 2014. That is finally when the audit committee stepped in. Uh, parted ways with Di Maria, parted ways with Lerner. They were subsequently indicted. Um, they ran into civil charges with the SEC. You know, they, neither one of them are going to have a pretty career from now forward. They're, both are serving prison time. Both had been ordered to serve, I think, pay up $21 million apiece in restitution. Uh, but I was thinking like, okay, so one of the reasons that Bankrate got a non-prosecution agreement today is because the audit committee, when it took over, did everything right. And it did everything we would normally expect. Uh, it got new outside counsel. It fully cooperated with uh, the Justice Department and the SEC and everything else. And that happened from 2014 forward, uh, while DiMaria and Lerner were, you know, they basically 
put together uh, individual cases against them. They were indicted. Company, I'm sure, cooperated with all of that. So you get a non-prosecution agreement, even though you are paying a penalty. I'm like, well, duh. What else would have happened? You know, if the audit committee does everything right and management today at Red Ventures had nothing to do with that misconduct from long ago. So a non-prosecution agreement sounds fine to me. But on the other hand, I had been thinking, why did the audit committee not take control of this issue sooner? Because for, what, at least 12 to 24 months, Di Maria was running the response to the investigation while he was ultimately the perpetrator who had started everything. So, of course, he's going to mislead. So how could the audit committee try to take control of things earlier? Um, it would be very difficult because Di Maria had so much um, influence over how the company would respond because he had this ability to override controls in an abusive, nefarious way. Uh, you know, this was a bad actor who was at one of the highest levels of the company. So how would an audit committee working with others in the enterprise, employees, maybe outside auditors or somebody else, how would you thwart a bad actor's ability to get this, to put the company on the wrong train? Well, it gets back to, you need systems, pure, simple accounting systems that give senior executives a lot of discretion to override controls, but you need to make sure that they have to show their homework, show their reasoning, and provide documentation that they're overriding for legitimate reasons, not some nefarious reason. Um, it, I liked this case, I suppose, because it showed how very specific, nerdy audit and accounting system issues do connect up to these very broad governance best practices we talk about all the time, that audit committee should take control, audit committee should be objective and get an outside investigation. Yes, that's true. But you need systems at the company itself to make sure that abuse of management override doesn't short circuit all of that. Um, and the way to do it is to construct your policies, construct, construct your systems so that unusual transactions such as cookie jar accounting, would stick out like a sore thumb. So it's not even that you'd be afraid of retaliate, retaliation from the CFO for speaking up about it. It's that there would be no need to speak up because everything should be as plain to accounting people, as plain as the sunrise at six in the morning. Um, and you can devise systems that do that so long as there's transparency, there's visibility, there are documentation requirements. If they're not there, then, well, why aren't they there? And it's not even that you're asking a pointed question. It's more like the system is incomplete and it's letting that weird transaction hang out in the breeze. So the CFO would have to provide some sort of documentation. And if he or she didn't, everybody would start to wonder why. Um, that's really what we need to get at for best practices here. And that's how you would tie the nerdy internal control stuff, which I love, um, to the big corporate best practices investigation stuff, which I also do love. But that that's the through line. And you want to make sure it's steady and it can't be cut by these bad actors like someone like Di Maria. Well, Matt, this was just a, a fascinating case. And the, the lessons you're able to tease out of it uh, really help, I think, a compliance practitioner think about how each one of the not only detect prongs or detect steps, but the prevent steps literally do all tie together up and down and uh, laterally across as well. Exactly. It's really just about transparency, 
to make uh, silencing more difficult to do. And once you do that, then suddenly speaking up becomes a whole lot easier. And then everything else gets easier after that, too. Well, I'll be interested to see with uh, what you come up with on MTS, and perhaps we can talk about that next week. All right, Tom. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take a look at a compliance or compliance-related topic and take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds to explore this topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.